Hey, everybody. My name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 20 of the show. And in this episode, we are going to be introducing a new book to the Marvel Pantheon of Comics. Um, we've been talking about how we like to do the spandex characters, and this character is not so much a spandex character, but he does become one later, and the comic is definitely, from the beginning, part of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, one could say he actually organizes all the spandex characters from time to time. From time to especially if you're looking at the cinematic version. Yeah, even the comic version, though, there's always, like, the secret war and stuff before mm-hmm. that. And so, yeah, he's got his fingers in a lot of things, which is always spandex-related. So we are, of course, talking about Nicholas Fury, who had his start as the uh, leader of a um, ensemble cast in a war comic known as Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Now, Mike, this is your first time to read any of this, isn't it? Yes, which is funny because Nick Fury is, I mean, he's not a Captain America spinoff character, but he is very much a quote unquote kind of Captain America character mm-hmm. um, in the sense that they both come from World War II. And at least in the 60s, if not later, you know, Cap is always working with or for S.H.I.E.L.D. in some excuse or another to do something. And Nick mm-hmm. is always around. So they're like good friends. But yeah, he debuted in Sergeant Fury, not Captain America. So I guess I just haven't read any of this stuff. I have read some. Uh, I read a lot for my podcast. I say a lot. I read several issues for my podcast with my daughter several years ago called Avengers Inspirations. And mm-hmm. then I kept reading. So um, a few of the early major dramatic beats I'm aware of, a few of the uh, first appearances of characters who actually go on to become significant Marvel characters, uh, I've read some of those. Uh, we will, of course, reach a point where I have not read anything past. So I'll talk How long about does that this go for? a hundred something issues. Oh wow, really? Okay. Yeah. At some wow. point, it goes into a reprint book, and mm. we'll probably you know stop then. But um, but yeah, this is, and it goes through several different creating creative teams. I've heard fantastic stuff about the whole length of the series. Um, so we'll see how it changes metamorphoses as we go forward. Um, I think it's important to note that this book could just as easily have fallen into the same category for us as Millie the Model, Kathy, Two-Gun Kid, and all that other stuff, because it's just a war comic. Um, but of course, Nick Fury's connection here is is why we're covering And all of these characters go on to become supporting characters in S.H.I.E.L.D. But we could argue that if that's the case, we should have covered, uh, you know, all the Hellcat uh Patsy Walker. Patsy Walker stuff because technically she gets folded into the Marvel Universe. And we, I think we, I don't know if we argued on the show or just to ourselves that we could just talk about that when we actually get to her yeah. in, super, in superhero form. So we could have done that with Nick, but Nick seems just like a, a more uh, interesting, maybe a more uh, stronger character. So it's like just skipping all this seemed kind of wrong, I guess. And, and the, the ties with the Marvel Universe are established very early on. I mean, it's not too many issues before we see Reed Richards appearing, Captain America uh-huh. appearing. So when they made this comic, it was definitely with the idea of a um, Marvel Universe tie-in. Um, right. Little bit of background of the book. Of course, Stan and Jack both did serve in World War II. So they both had some experience with 
um, uh, you know, your training that you do and then being an enlisted man and having to deal with that lifestyle, I think could be wrong, but I think Stan, most of Stan Lee's work in this service was more administrative and desk oriented. Whereas I think Jack was a uh, pilot. I think, mm-hmm. um, I think that Ben Grimm being a pilot is kind of inspired by Jack himself having been a pilot. Um, but whenever they made this book, they were thinking about, or at least Stan t- tells the story how, back in World War II, the comics that were about World War II adventures were very kooky. You know, Captain America fought vampires and yeah. Nazis dressed as moths and that sort of thing. And so they wanted to go for more realistic stories. Now, one could say these stories are hardly realistic, but they're certainly a sight closer to, you know, realistic war experiences compared to what we actually got during the war. Right. Like, I feel like, and we'll get into this more probably with Captain America when he shows up finally uh, in episode 655, but um, I feel like Golden Age Marvel is like a different universe than mm-hmm. than the Marvel we read now, even though they pretend it's not and they do a good job of kind of like telling us, you know, like they'll retcon someone's first appearance into the, you know, golden age or whatever, even though that's not at all what was intended at the time. Um, so to me, in my brain, it's always like a separate thing, like golden age, Captain America or golden age, human torch or Submariner or the war is just completely different than the flashbacks we're going to get in this, you know, 616 Marvel earth prime universe. Right. And there'll be times where they like, where some writers try to reference stuff from those old comics Mm-hmm. But then anytime they actually do flashbacks to what, you know, what Submariner and Human Torch and Cap were doing, like especially during Ed Brookbreaker's era and stuff, whenever they actually show scenes from back then, it's all very grounded. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. It's they, never they ignore flash- the weird. Yeah. Um, I do want to read a paragraph from the Marvel Masterworks volume that Stan, from the introduction that Stan wrote, talking about the characters in this comic, because this comic actually has a pretty, some pretty interesting milestones as far as the Marvel Universe goes. Stan says, one thing that was really important to me was making sure that we had a mixed group of guys, just like in the real army. This is probably the first series to feature an Irishman, a Southerner, a Jew, an Italian, and a Black, not to mention later on a newcomer who might have been gay. As for Fury, for me, he embodied all the rough, tough, hard as nails, but totally heroic non-coms I had known all through the war. So there was definitely a major effort toward diversity, even though it's all different kinds of European diversity. It's still an effort at making a diverse group of characters. Well, Um, you know, and this is World War II and they're all on the same team. So it kind of has to be. That's the way things were. (laughs) In a way, European, you know, allies at this point. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah. Oh, in, in the context of diversity, this, as we're going to meet him in just a second, when we get to the characters. This is the first Marvel superhero comic, the first Marvel universe comic, maybe the first major comic book at all. I don't know to feature an African American in huh. the, on, like as a regular ensemble cast character. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Gabe Jones is our first guy. And honestly, I'm not entirely sure that we've had any black characters even in the background of our comics I before I was, this. I was just trying to think right now while you were saying that, and I cannot think of any. So Gabe Jones is here, and then from here going forward, we will start to see both background characters and then recurring supportive characters, and then an increase eventually in headliner characters of um, you know people who aren't from the Caucasian background. Now, 
Did you read anywhere as to why this title even exists? Um, no, go ahead. Because I'm not sure if this is BS or not. Because, you know, it just comes from the internet. I didn't go to the library and look up a real reference or anything like that. But something somewhere said they were challenged. Lee and Kirby were challenged to come up with the most ridiculous title they could come up with and see if they could sell the book. Because they were so amazing at this point. You know, uh-huh. Lee and Kirby team. You know, Lennon and McCartney. And so their idea was Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, which now doesn't even sound all that ridiculous. It sounds pretty awesome. Right. But Stan was arguing, yes, but in 1963, you had the word howling and you had the word commandos, which are really long words. And we're slapping it all together on this big title. And so that was like that was like answering the challenge. Can we make up a weird ass title and then try and make a book out of it? In the Marvel Masterworks introduction, he does mention a couple of times he seems to get a kick of how long that title was. He figured it was the longest masthead masthead that had been done to that time. Uh-huh. And there aren't that many titles that have gone longer. I mean, you have stuff like New Superman and the Justice League of China is probably <laughs> longer. Wow. Never heard of that yeah. one. Okay. It's a, it's a current book. It's actually just ending, sadly, because it's a fantastic book. But um, But yeah. Uh, actually, by the time this comes out, its last issue is probably in the past. But um, yeah, I mean, Cave Carson has a something something I. There are some long titles out there, but comics generally have short titles. Batman, full yeah. stop. Superman. Yeah, I mean, so there could be some truth into that, and also, you know, they're they're actually giving it not an anthology book, but an actual title, and and just going full blown, uh, you know. Filling the book with that one story with these these characters, so mm-hmm. so maybe that was the challenge. See if you could just make something crazy and then go with it, and that's just what they came up with. And this is Lee and Kirby. We've talked about how Kirby is backing off on other books because he has an increase of workload, and he also has some other major projects coming along. This is one of those projects, and since this book, as we're going to see, or as we're going to maybe mention, or maybe we're just going to mention it now and never again, this one's divided up into parts which kind of reinforces the idea for me that he's, he worked on this book a little ways earlier. Like he's, he worked, he's been working on Sergeant Fury for a while compared to the other titles that are coming out right now. Um, because no other comic book on the stands that Marvel is putting out has parts anymore. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't really know what else to say other than to get into it. Yeah. I think, I think we're good to go. Which, I, I got the cover. Unfortunately uh, is, uh, is it's my turn to summarize without looking Unfortunately, unfortunately, not because I don't like the story, because it's kind of scary me this idea of summarizing this. Because these are all new characters, kind of to me. I mean, I've heard of Nick Fury, obviously, and Dum Dum Dugan, obviously, and I know about the Howling Commandos as a general concept. But I am not going to remember all these guys' names. I'm sorry, I don't know them yet. Maybe by issue twenty, I'll have them down. Well, before uh, you do the synopsis, should we just kind of run down who everyone is? Uh, you can, but it's still not going to make it into my synopsis. <laughs> okay, so, so let's just forget it. And All we right. can do it afterwards because I'm just going to go. Go for uh, it. One guy does that. Pretty much. I'm just going to generalize them. Um, but it starts out in France, this book. And the some people from the French Resistance, or I guess the, the army is invading this town that has the French Resistance in it. And they're trying, like a couple guys are trying to send off a last minute, you know, uh, Eh, what do you call those things? Like email? Um, not email. Telegram? Telegram, thank you. Wow, that didn't work already. Off to a good start. And they're trying to send it to the U.S. before they get gunned down, which unfortunately is what happens. Anyway, the U.S. gets it, and it turns out that this town 
had as one of its members a guy who knows the time and place of when um, D-Day is going to happen, which, you know, is not good because he was captured and the Germans are going to interrogate this information from him. So the U.S. needs to send someone down there to get this guy back. Um, so they pick the Howling Commandos and we get introduced to them. They're like kind of doing a, uh, you know, training exercise and they're pretty much all like kind of a jovial, fun, loving bunch and they're, but they're really good at what they do. And then they're led by Nick Fury, who we all know, who's really like kind of ill-tempered and loves to scream at them and stuff, but they all take it, you know, um, with a good attitude, I guess. Cause you know, you're in the military, so that's what your commander does. He, he screams at you. So anyway, they all get put in this plane and sent to, that town and on the way they get attacked by the germans in the air the germans gun them down but not before nick and his crew can kind of gun them down back with the machine gun and this really awesome well-placed grenade thrown by dum-dum uh and they make it into the town where immediately they're set upon by germans um and they kind of get like pinned down into this house and it seems like all is lost, except suddenly the bullets stop, and it turns out there's still some French resistance in there, and they popped their heads out when they saw the U.S. come in and decided to help them out. So it's led by this blonde girl who either has no name or a name that I can't remember, but she kind of you know, leads her team in there and rescues them, and then they in turn, like I think Nick Fury puts on like a general's uniform, and he goes to the woods where all the rest of the townspeople are being held by the Germans and he walks straight in there and all the Germans kind of like salute him because he looks like a general and he pulls out his machine gun and just like guns them down in cold blood and they all die and the people are free and everybody says yay and then the French resistance blonde lady says I know who you're here for you're here to rescue the guy who knows about D-Day it's in a compound over here but I need to go with you because you'll never get in by yourself so they go in I can't remember if they sneak in, but at some point they start fighting and a lot of them get taken out pretty quick. But Nick keeps pushing on, even though he thinks his comrades are his comrades, his allies are dead and stuff, but he has to complete the mission. So he keeps pushing forward and he's like the last one because he's the best one. And he gets like a grenade out and throws it at a wall for some reason. And it seemingly like falls on top of him. Meanwhile, the Howling Commandos aren't dead. They're just all been rounded up and captured and they're being put against the wall for a firing squad along with the resistance lady and before they kill everybody they pull out their prisoner who is that guy who knows d-day and it turns out it's the father of the resistance woman and they all tell him you need to tell us what you know or we are going to gun down your daughter right now and he says no no don't gun down my daughter and she says no no dad don't tell him anything but before they can get over that drama it turns out nick fury is not dead the wall somehow crumbled on him in like a V shape. So he actually was okay in this little tiny cave and he busts out and he starts blowing people away with that awesome machine gun again. And that rallies the troops and the howling commandos kick in and they pretty much take over the little uh, firing squad that was going to do them in um, rescuing the guy. So then once again, they trick the army without dressing this time though, they actually take an actual general and his car and make him at gunpoint, like get them out of the compound. And then once they're back safely into the French village, uh, Nick and his guys agree to take the German prisoner and leave the resistance woman with her resistance and wish them luck in their attempts to, you know, take on Germany by themselves, I guess. Um, and they go back to U.S. And then the last panel is 
like flash forward to the actual D-Day where there's seven guys leading the charge, which are, of course, Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos. All right. The end. I think that was it. And see, I didn't have to say their names because, you know, whatever. <laughs> they kind of all work as one unit, so. They do. They do. And they get more distinction as you go along. A lot of them are just one notes or stereotypes or just an there's an idea. We're going to use an idea to kind of govern their dialogue kind of thing. Um, well, so, but, but on that note, I have to say the beginning is super awesome because it does give us, like you were saying, this great breakdown of who everybody is before they even start the story. Yeah, that way they don't have to spend time doing it later. You, you, you yeah. have this two-page spread and then you know who they are. It's yeah. almost like it, it feels like an old-timey movie, like maybe there's a narrator like uh-huh. all these guys are in, a, are in the back of an army truck heading to something. And so we just like hold a, the camera on them, but it's not like a still, it's just like we're rolling around and the guy's just kind of sitting there bouncing up and down because the, the road's rough while the guy talks about him on the camera, that sort of thing. And here is, you know, Corporal Dum Dum Dugan, this one time circus strong, you know, that sort of thing. Or maybe even like newsreels from the day. Or newsreels. Yeah. Like showing them the action and a little, like, a little profile of a soldier. Yeah. So just a quick run through of these seven guys. Of course, Sergeant Fury. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Fury is the manliest man that ever manned. Mm-hmm. Um, he okay. For those who are just familiar with the cinematic universe, Sergeant Fury is white, and he has both of his eyes during this early comic. Yes, yes. For now, and man, um, do I miss this Fury. I forget that sometimes. I mean, because Sam Jackson is awesome as Nick Fury. I'm glad he's there, uh, especially in. Cap 2, Winter Soldier, that he was so awesome in that movie. But uh, yeah, growing up, this was my Nick Fury. So mm-hmm. sometimes I forget that that even existed. Um, his right-hand man is Corporal Dum Dum Dugan, uh, mm-hmm. ex-Circus Strongman. Distinguishing characteristics are a bowler cap and a huge red mustache. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty soon we'll see him grabbing about his wife. He rarely wears fatigues. He's usually in his blue stripy shirt. And he Long looks sleeves. out of shape. Yeah. Um, we have Jonathan Jr. Juniper, college graduate, straight out of college. He's young. Uh, freckles and blonde hair are his characteristics and a big old goofy grin on it a lot of the times. Um, there's Rebel Ralston. It says he's an ex-jockey from the Blue Gas Country. So, oh, Rebel. So he's going to have his, like, southern draw going on. Mm-hmm. Um Gabe Jones is our African-American character. He likes to play the trumpet. He used to play at, at uh, he used to blow the sweetest trumpet this side of Carnegie Hall. Now he gives out with the hot licks on the field of battle, but his notes are just as true in his hand and harder steady as ever. Um, unfortunately, playing the trumpet is going to be like the one distinguishing thing that Gabe Jones does for a lot of these early issues. <laughs> but that's cool. I like the trumpet. Yeah. Plus it's it looks like, more like a bugle. But okay. We're all shooting our guns at Nazis. Hey, Gabe, pull your trumpet out. Play some jazz. Yeah. Well, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Dino Minnelli is an actor. He's a 1930s actor who's under an alias. Dino Minnelli is not his real name. Um, he has given up that career to uh, repay the country he loves for all it has given him. Hmm. So, so is that supposed to be based on somebody, I wonder? I think so. I think he's inspired by some people, but I, and I remember having an idea of a couple people that might have fit the bill when I did this with Lily. And I, if I went back and listened to this, that episode, maybe I could, you know, figure it out. But 
I couldn't find anything about it this time around. Well, maybe next issue it'll be more obvious because he's not really in this that much. Yeah, he's not. Well, he's the one that um, dresses up as the Nazi general that, in that one spot. Oh, so he's the, the actor. Yeah. He's the vicious, vicious man. Right. Which we'll, we'll get to when we get to that. But I got some things to say about that. And finally, Izzy Cohen has the darkest, saddest description. This scrappy, tough master mechanic loves machinery the way some men love fame and fortune. He can repair anything except the sorrow in his soul when he remembers the fate of his relatives in Europe at the hands of the mad little man with the mustache. Because Izzy Cohen is our Jewish officer or Jewish enlisted man. And um, he has lost family members in the gas chambers and the concentration camps. So what country would that mean he's from then possibly well he could still be from the states he could be living in new york or somewhere else yeah Um, but then his family just wasn't yeah Hmm. it's not too uncommon yeah i guess that's true but really if you were a jew in world war ii you probably were from the states or was there other countries that you may have been from oh you know if you're living in the united states during world war ii you could very easily be a refugee Okay, but I'm saying if you were – because Stan says he mixed all this up based on his own experiences, yeah? Mm-hmm. So he obviously had Jews in his unit or at least experienced them in, in you know, the army. So mm-hmm. what what countries – Could they be representing? Yeah, besides America. Um, anything else? I mean, Poland always had a large Jewish population. Um, Spain – as a large Jewish population. But were they on the front and all that stuff? or oh, I, guess I, I don't know enough about, the, about how it all went down. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it's a good question. I, so, I don't know enough. So that reminds me. You know how there's like Civil War buffs? Mm-hmm. I always told myself if I was ever going to be a buff about a war, it'd be World War II. But as you can tell, I clearly never went around, got around to doing that because <laughs> I don't know a lot. But that's one of the things I like about this book is it's kind of, you know, I feel like there might be some actual things that are happening in this book that really happened or like. Well, this particular issue, yeah, is, is kind of centered around a, a real event or at least in the, well, the build up to that event. Uh, well, yes, yeah, so obviously that event. But even like the place they go to raid to get the guy out is an actual place. I looked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then they have like the page with like, here's all the guns that they used in World War II and stuff like that. I think if I was, if I was more uh, intelligent about about the war, that I that I this would be a really fun book. Yeah, the I you know I'm a pacifist. I I don't really have any use for war or you know knowing a lot about the wars. But like you, World War II seems to have this fascination. And if mm-hmm. I were to learn about a war, it'd probably be that one. And back during my Golden Age Superman podcast, I was kind of charting. The progress yeah. of the war as I went through, you know, 1939 and 1940. And, you know, I, I learned a lot then. Um, well, it doesn't hurt that all the awesome superheroes came out of that. So right on and around that. So, yeah, it's just that whole time and all the propaganda and, and the villainy of Germany and everything. It's like it's it's I'm not going to say it's fun because that's not nice to the people who had to go through it. But, you know, in terms of wars, it's probably the more interesting one for me. Yeah, it's huge. It's complex. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so those are our characters, and you know, as as we get into the story, and they talk about the commandos. You know, don't you know send a message to the commandos, get them; they, they can help us. The only they can do what must be done. And so, even before we get, even before we get to know these characters, they are known. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. They've clearly already been set as a group, and they do awesome things. Mm-hmm. It's like a superhero team, but of regular dudes. Yeah, and. 
you know, like we said, I don't know a lot about the, about the details of World War II, but we can look at specific names. And so we're in the days and weeks before D-Day. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who don't know, D-Day was when the Allied forces invaded Europe to start retaking France back from Germany. Um, so we're looking at spring of 1944, which you know has us starting this comic series already toward the back end of the war, like the last year of the war. Right. Yeah. So almost over already. Does that mean? Yeah, that's interesting. So you say Captain America appears in some of these. Mm-hmm. Does these? Does this jump around, or does it start here and just keep going? Like in terms of history or in terms of timeline? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting because I um, thought he I thought he was lost, what? quote unquote, before the end. But I don't know when. I guess we'll find out. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I feel. Mm. Mm, that's a really not. Now that you mentioned that, yeah, because he falls into the drink. In oh, but there's more than one Captain America, also. So if they don't say Steve Rogers, it could be any Captain America. Yeah, but I f- think that when he shows up in Sergeant Fury, that that event is referenced in the modern day Cap stories. Mm. I don't know. I'd, I'd fear as we get there. Yeah. Um, and also, I think maybe that even though they established this date here. It might not be something that we specifically hold to as the series goes on. Once True. this keeps on going, they may kind of be a little bit more fast and loose with the chronology of things. Well, especially if they don't say, hey, remember last week when we when we rescued that guy from that French compound? Mm-hmm. Like, if they never say that, then it easily could be a story set at a different time than this one, like earlier than this one. Yes. We have uh, this uh, the desire to liberate France, which means our mission to rescue a French underground leader makes sense because he's the one who would know he would probably be coordinating with the u.s on when would be a good time to have d-day happen Mm -hmm. so we don't want him to be captured by the german forces and we meet our probably our other major character of this comic which is captain happy sam sawyer okay i wasn't sure if he was going to be a regular or not because he's only in like the two panels but yeah he's he's a regular he's basically he's sergeant uh fury's boss Mm mm-hmm and he does make an appearance in the MCU. He is in the second season of Agent Carter. Whenever they do the Howling Commandos episode of that season, uh, he's on that squad. But he is Happy Sam Sawyer, so named because he never smiles. Okay. Yeah, so he's Happy Sam. But, like, I, I mean, my summary told the plot, but it didn't really do justice to any of the characters. Like, this book is really fun in terms of kind of everybody having, like, a very a unique personality. Um, they They're all really have a bouncing u- off each other. Yeah, and they have a unique. It's like you know all the the scenes that I really like in Fantastic Four lately, where that where it's like the downtimes where they kind of jab at each other. Like this whole book is almost all that. It's like just as an example, whenever Fury gets out there because his his guys are doing a training exercise, mm-hmm. the guys, all the commandos are you know belly flopped in the muds, you know, trying to get across the field and survive the fact that Dugan is raining machine gun fire down in their general direction. Mm-hmm. And Sergeant Fury comes over and says, okay, dumb, dumb, knock it off. If we ain't made soldiers out of them by now, we never will. And Doogie says, oh, Sarge, just let me give him one more little burst as he keeps on firing. And mm-hmm. we get this fantastic panel oh, yeah. of Dugan with his fingers in his ears as this word, no, is <laughs> blasted over his head. Yeah. And the next panel, he says, Sarge, I get the feeling you're trying to tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. And Kirby's firing on all cylinders. You could tell this is where he's putting his energy in right now. Fantastic Four and Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Um, it's just really fun. 
Yeah, I wrote down several thoughts as we're going through the details of as I was going through the plot, but they almost seem a little bit too piddly right now. Just stuff like you know, uh, Junior has a patch of dynamite that he's like, "I'm going to take this on the trip," <laughs> right. and then like on the third to last page, he Nick Fury uses that dynamite to blow up a, some some uh, Nazis. It's like Chekhov's dynamite, I guess. Yeah, um, and there were some great lines on page eleven. What's page eleven? Um, let's see. Yeah, they're killing us, but we ain't dying. What gives? Yeah. Because <laughs> back away, do you know? You know how angry Fury gets if we get bullet holes in our nice new uniforms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Izzy, anyone ever tell you that as a comedian you make a great commando? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just they're just great stuff. It's good stuff, and it, I, I wonder. Like I thought when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, this is probably like inspired by the Dirty Dozen or some one of those kind of movies where it's like fun guy a bunch of weird different guys from different cultures all getting together having to work together to do this dangerous mission but like dirty dozen doesn't come out for like seven more years so i don't know if this was inspired by any movies that were coming out at the time like was john wayne doing world war ii movies or it just seemed very cinematic to me yeah i think the idea of a squad of everyman Uh people is kind of a trope of war movies yes the dirty dozen is probably one of those that does it best Mm-hmm. But like Saving Private Ryan and all sorts oh, of stuff, yeah. just, you've got this squad of soldiers that are off to do a suicide mission. And they say, they describe this as such in the comic. This is a suicide mission these guys are going to go on and somehow they're going to survive. Well, you get the feeling they do suicide missions for a living. So Right. Like every single issue is going to be something they're never going to come back from. Right. These are the guys. The crazy thing is, is that sometimes someone doesn't come back. I mean, people will be dying in this comic. Oh, We wow. are going to lose characters. Well, that's probably... One of the good things about having a, a flashback series is you can sort of be more permanent about things, mm-hmm. give actual dates and do actual things that have happened because you know they're going to happen that way and kill people off. Maybe we do get our most feminist character in Marvel Universe so far in this comic. Is that lady whose name I couldn't remember or does she have? Yeah, one? I don't even know if she gets a name, but she's the she's the uh, resistance squad leader. Mm-hmm. And. Never once, other than an occasional nickname like Dina Manelli calling her doll or whatever, never once is she treated like anything other than a resistance leader. You know? Yeah. She, it, her, she's ne- no one comes on to her. No one puts her down or questions her because she's a woman. I think the Nazis might say something, one or two things to her. But it's just like she is the leader of the resistance, at least this little band of it. And that's yeah. all that you need to know about her. They, when she volunteers to like lead him. To go rescue her dad. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, none of them are like, oh, you're just a dame. You don't know what you're talking about or anything like that. It's too dangerous for a girl. No, they just say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Come on. Oh, yeah. And um, later on, when they get in the tank, uh, Sergeant Fury is like, um, let's see. Okay, sister, we freed those hostages. Now climb up and guide us to where we're going. They need her. She's, she's mm-hmm. you know, She is the person they need to, to get to yeah. the man they're trying to save. So it's- she, she storms the castle with a machine gun just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, she hugs dumb. She hugs her. Oh, she hugs her dad. I thought that was dumb, dumb. What does she do with dumb, dumb? Not much. You know, they're going to die together, but they both look pretty sad about it. So it's not like she's like more scared than he is, you know? Right. Speaking of scared people, we do get um, Hitler in this comic. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. They call Hitler on the phone and he shows up in a panel. Right. And technically he is a Marvel character because he shows up in a lot more panels eventually. So first appearance, Adolf Hitler. There we go. Yep. They, assen- a- they essentially call him why? Oh, because they're like they can't get the information out of the guy, so they call him 
to see if he has any ideas, I guess. And his ideas are get the information or I'll have you all shot or something like that. Right. So it's like, well, that was a waste of a call. And he's like, answer me. Don't talk to me. Um, that, there's there's German sprinkled throughout this. We have words like Achtung and Schweinehund. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And yeah. German makes compound nouns mm-hmm. like English can only dream of. Like one of their ranks is Übergruppenführer, uh-huh. which is like the overgroup leader. So I guess you have the leader and the group leader and the overgroup leader, Übergruppenführer. And it's just, it's... Oh, yeah. They just slap stuff together. Right. And they've got like 28 versions of the... Um, German, <laughs> German is hard. Even Spanish though it also has 28 versions of the... Well, I guess, yeah. But they do the three different genders, don't they? Oh, they do. I wasn't aware. They do male, female, and neuter. In German? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like, oh, good luck. But anyway, yeah, I've tried to learn German. It's not easy. The resistance leader is named Labrov, which I thought was a cute choice. The Brave? A, yeah. Yeah. Which would also be the, the girl's name. She was, they, they were hey, called the Labrovs. Labrov Jr. Right. Um, Running out of things that I wrote down to say. Okay, okay, I forgot. We kind of just glossed over it a little bit. But the actor, who I thought was Nick Fury, who dresses up as the general. Uh-huh. And he comes in, and they all just, like, salute. They're not holding their guns. They think he's legit. And he pulls out his machine gun and just kills them all, right? Well, he tells somebody else, Aksung, hand me that weapon. Schnell. And he's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uber, and Uber, then he kills him. Yeah. So you've read the comics code authority. Are we violating any rules here? That seems really harsh, but I don't know. Is it legal to kill? Yeah, I don't know. It's a war comic. It's a war comic. Yeah, you're right. So maybe that's the difference. I don't know. They're not, they're not being hit with bullets on the screen. True. I think is an important detail. Mm -hmm. No blood. There's no blood. There's no deaths on screen. Um, So I guess the firing squad is also kind of dark and sinister, but that doesn't end up carrying through. I guess it's no different than what's his face shooting Johnny Storm and uh, off panel, but Johnny Storm didn't die, and these guys, there's one, two, three, four, five, at least five guys with their hands up that he just like guns down. Now we will see as we go through that Stan starts putting dialogue in here to soften the blow. But uh-huh. like Jack will draw people getting shot and killed, and Stan will say something like, you know, it's a good thing that, you know, we just shot the wall down and blocked the way so that they couldn't <laughs> come after us. You know, just stuff to sort of, like, explain away the fact that people are dying. That's like, did you ever watch, like, uh, Dragon Ball Z or, like, the English version? I've, uh, I always, I tend to watch Japanese with subtitles. Yeah, so in the but Japanese version, the they all just legit kill people, right? With their right. fireballs. And in America, when they released it for the first time, they dubbed it and said, I sent you to another dimension. <laughs> it's of like, no, that did. dude just screamed and got obliterated. But okay, good job. Right, right. Uh, um, the page 17, uh-huh. whenever um, they call Lebrov. And they put her his daughter on the phone. Father, mm-hmm. save me, save me. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to not be his daughter later on. Right, you right. find out. And it, it was reminds Adolf Hitler. Me of that, that bit in Pulp Fiction. Uh huh. Whenever Honey Bunny and What's His Brains um, are talking about how a guy robbed a bank over the phone. Oh, like yeah. Like he called a bank and says, I've got this girl hostage. And if you don't put all your money, I'm going to kill her. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's great. Who did they get to do it is what I want to know. Yeah, I know. 
Father, I... save me, save me. Wow, she sounds really German today. That's weird. <laughs> I don't know. That's that, that's a good point. Okay. This is World War II, Stan. On page 18, mm-hmm. whenever something blows up, you could have used better words than using the Holocaust as a diversion. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoops. I mean, it's all capitals because it's comics. And it would have been a lowercase h because this is just an explosion, not the Holocaust. But it is referencing this specific explosion. So it does use the phrasing using the Holocaust as a diversion, which could easily be read as using the Holocaust as a diversion. We're going to go. And it's just, it's terrible to think. Yeah. Of, yeah. How that could that's read. a, that's a hot button word. Yeah. Yeah. Not a great bit. idea. I, I don't understand what Nick's exact purpose. I mean, I guess he's trying to blow up the uh, ammunition supply, but really they're there to rescue somebody. It's not like, you know, the ammunition supply. Yeah. Okay, great. They don't have any more bullets, but they still have a bunch of bullets trained on you. Mm-hmm. It's not like, like, I think if you were trying to kill an ammunition supply, it's because you're like stuck in battle for five weeks with these people and, and you want to ruin their resources or something, but that's not really what their mission is here. So it is a little weird that he just goes running in there shirtless and makes a building fall on his head. Like, yeah. And it's thanks also, boss. It also seems like the sort of thing that he really could easily not survive. Mm-hmm. He's, he's just crawling on his belly across a courtyard. It he's is cool dialogue, belly. but yeah. Yeah. And he throws dynamite at the people who are shooting at him. Why didn't they just aim lower? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it is hitting next to him. So I guess they just are like stormtroopers and they can't hit anything. I guess. Well, they are stormtroopers. That's where you get the name stormtroopers. Hey, the original stormtroopers. All right. right. Cover me fast while I make like a hero. See, I like those. I like that kind of dialogue. Nick Fury and the thing are pretty much the same. A little bit. Yep. Um, and I think they're both probably based off of King Kirby. So I don't know. I never met the man, but he seems like that kind of guy. He's, they smoke cigars and they talk tough. Yeah, I think Sergeant Fury and Ben Grimm are both different aspects of Jack Kirby's character. And yeah. also, I mean, I think the idea that whenever you're an enlisted man, you do have a sergeant who's always yeah. yelling and tough as nails and yep. the guy from Police Academy. Yep. D for dirt bags. <laughs> so whenever I say, hey, dirt bags, that means you. Um or, of course, more famously, the guy from uh, Full Metal Jacket, whose name escapes me. But that's a drill sergeant, I guess. Not the <laughs> same thing, but very scary. Um, okay, so page 19, we do have you know one less than feminist line coming from the Nazi leader. He's like, do not make another move unless you want the girl to feel the bite of our flamethrower. And she lifts her gut up and says, you think my life counts in the struggle to rid the world of you? This is your answer. And I'm just like, <laughs> I got your patriarchy right here. <laughs> Shoot her down. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. She does cry a little. So there, that's like the one quote unquote girl but she, thing. But she and Dum Dum Dugan both cry a little bit, you know? Yeah, that's true. But hers dialogue balloon actually says sob. It does a little so bit. So it's like, oh, so. you had to say sob. Three little letters, which otherwise ruin a perfect record. Um, I actually, as I was reading through, I didn't realize that Nick Fury had fake died at the top of that page. Um, mm. I don't know. I just, you forgot didn't. where he was. Yeah. So whenever later on, they're sad about him being, you know, or actually later on, whenever he turns out to not be dead, mm. I'm like, it's the Sarge. He's alive. Oh wait, did I miss something? Oh yeah. They're actually all really sad that he just died. Aren't they? And 
While you were missing that, I missed the first Wahoo because I was thinking that they didn't say Wahoo in this issue, but they totally do. Right there on the bottom of page 20. When Sergeant Fury's really alive, they all shout Wahoo, which, you know, if any, nobody knows, that's like their uh, their catchphrase, I guess, or their sound call. Yeah. Call it's, to arms. Um, oh, they say it, it twice. S- they say and it there's again, a Yahoo. Too. I was actually just paging back. There's a Yahoo on page 10 mm-hmm. whenever they throw the... Um, uh, what do they call it? That whenever you have a, a a bottle full of flammable liquid, yeah, and a little thing at the top, Romans. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's a thing of gasoline with a rag on top that they light on fire in it. Oh, there's another Wahoo on page seven. They're wahooing all through this thing. Oh, okay. Well, eventually that just becomes like their. I mean, I guess yeah, it, I guess it already is, but that is their uh, their know, catchphrase. When you hear Wahoo, that means the Howling Commandos are doing something. That was one of those moments of Captain America: The First Avenger that made me so happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whenever yeah. Uh, Dum Dum Dugan is shouts Wahoo. Yeah. Um, and seeing the Howling Commandos in that movie also made me so happy. That was very cool. And um, much and much like this comic, they didn't really get into their specific characters, but but they were there. Yeah. And yeah, so we uh, on June 6, nineteen forty four, Lebrov's words come true as the first wave of the Allied invasion forces hit Omaha Beach. And in the forefront of the attack are seven Howling Commandos, but it's a tale for another time. As they um, begin invading Europe to try to get France back from Germany. Yeah, that was a good issue. I liked it a lot. It was fun. I really do like it. It's, it's one of those comics where the actual mission and the mechanics of the war that they're doing is less important to the enjoyment factor than the character dynamics and the shenanigans along the way. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, there is a big page of different kinds of guns, weapons of war. I don't do guns. I don't I, either, but I still think, like, if it was 1963 and your dad or, yeah, probably your dad, I guess, served mm-hmm. in the war and stuff, and you were kind of interested in that sort of thing, here's a comic book version of it where you can, like, learn stuff. I could see little me taking this to my dad and saying, hey, dad, have you ever used any of these? Yeah. I can see myself. And it's all very reminiscent of the handbook that will eventually come out in the eighties too. Like not only this gun thing, like Captain America's shield or Ant-Man's helmet. Here's the guns they use. France, Japan, Russia. Actually, I do find that interesting. France, Japan, Russia, Germany, British Navy, and and Austria, the different kinds of guns, handguns they used. The, the different aesthetics I do find interesting as well. And then like the opening with the whole, like we were talking about where it's introducing all the characters. That's very handbook, like, like a team shot. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I would have eaten all this stuff up. I still like it now, but I would have definitely eaten this up as a kid where it's like giving you the bio and the rundown on these people. And that's good stuff. All right. Well, does that wrap us up for our first issue of Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos? It sure does. Well, crap, because that means we've got to get a journey in Mr. 92. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Spoilers, everybody. This yeah. one's not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think we even gave any dates. Do you, do you have Mike's Amazing World in front of you? It came out on March 5th, 1963, with a cover date of May 1963, which is exactly what Sergeant Fury did. Okay. So I forgot to so, say that. Yeah, all three of these, if we do three, these two, and and maybe the next one. All right, Journey into Mystery 92 um, has Loki breaking some chains as Thor lulls in the background saying, I can't reach it. Within seconds, all my superpowers be gone forever. Because he can't reach his hammer, which is just a little ways away. Mm -hmm. And Loki's like, I've done it. I've stolen Thor's hammer. Now the Thunder God is at my mercy. Mm -hmm. 
So um, this is with Stanley doing the plot and Robert Bernstein is still doing the script as he will do for the next four issues. And Joe Sinnott is joining our art team doing the uh, art for this. Now, before I get into this, there is an opening caption that's not really borne out by the story, but I hate it. So it's, um, <laughs> without his magic hammer, Mighty Thor is as bereft of powers as Mighty Samson without his hair. And that's not true. At all. At all. Like, Thor, if he's Thor, still has his strength. Yes. Now, the way, the way the story plays out, that, that caption is is not important at all. Okay. So. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. I guess. In Asgard, uh-huh. Heimdall is watching the Bifrost. And this Asgardian girl is like, yo, Heimdall. And he's like, hey, girl. And she's like, so um, can I get by? He's like, I don't know. Are you Loki in disguise? She's like, no, Loki's right over there. He's like, oh, yeah, Loki's right over there. Chain to that rock. Check it out. And so the girl, whose name is Neri, leaves and goes about her business. Uh, can you hear that? I can. But we can okay. ignore it. Well, let's just wait. It'll be over. Why are people calling right now? It's ridiculous. Okay. I'm going to put a mark Done. at 48. Okay, 4830 will take out the phone. 4830 take out phone. And so the girl whose name is Neri is all like, you know, she just goes on about her business. And um, Loki is sitting there wishing that he had the power to go and torment Thor because he's been chained here. Because evidently, whenever he was messing around with Sandu, the sorcerer last issue, even though he didn't leave Asgard to do it, that was still too much. So now he's all chained up and can do nothing to mess with Thor. Uh-huh. So back in New York, Don Blake and Jane Foster are chilling in like a villain in their um, office. The nurse leaves for the day and some bad guys come in. And the bad guy's like, okay, Doc, our leader's been shot. You're going to fix him or we're going to kill you. And so Don Blake fixes him. And then they're like, okay, Don, now that you fixed him, we're going to kill you. And he's like, no, look over there. It's Elvis. And they turn around. What? The king? And he strikes his cane to the ground, turns into Thor. And they're like, oh, my gosh, it's Thor. Where's Don? And Thor's like, it's a good thing that Don Blake is hiding behind that desk over there. Because um, I'm going to beat you up with my hammer. So he ties the bad guys to the uh, to a gurney, to an operating table, and um, ties that table to his hammer and swings it. And the hammer takes the table of bad guys to the police, disengages somehow, and then flies back to Thor. Um, Thor gets the hammer, turns back into Dawn, and then... Um, Jane shows up, I think. I thought she left for the day, but I think she comes back somehow, some way. Uh, maybe she heard about Thor doing stuff and such. So like, Jane oh, never goes away. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Dawn's like, yeah, yeah, Thor was here. It's pretty cool. Um, let me go split my pipe and be mysterious. <laughs> then he goes and stars in a movie. <laughs> so that all happened, and that's done. And now we're going to move on to the next phase. Story part two. Um BJ is this movie director who is making an action movie where Thor fights a sea monster. And Thor is actually doing all of the Thor um, effects, which is pretty great. I don't know if he's in all the rest of the movie, too, or if he's just doing this one scene. Anyway, he fights this fake 
sea serpent. It's like a really, really big prop, too. Um, he uses his hammer to call down lightning and storms and all this stuff. And while he's doing that, um, Loki uses his I can see anything anywhere vision and um, thinks how, you know, annoyed he is about Thor being cool. And it's like, hey, you know what? Thor has that hammer and that's made of Uru. And that's the same thing that my my chains here are made of. And that's why they're unshatterable. But, you know, Uru can shatter Uru. So Thor's hammer can shatter my chains. So if I just make my chains really magnetic, that'll pull Thor's hammer across the dimensional divide with magnetism. And yeah, that should work. <laughs> I'll do that. So Thor throws his hammer t- while the movie's going and the hammer, like, instead of coming back to Thor, gets pulled off by the magnetism and flies towards Loki and smashes his chains, setting Loki free. So then Thor's like, why did my hammer come back? That's crazy. If I don't get it within 60 seconds, I'm going to turn it down Blake. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my daddy. So he prays and calls the dad and says, yo, uh, my hammer's going. Um, can you help me look for it? It's like any other kid. I can't find my... I can't find my pencils, Dad. I can't find my coloring book. I can't find my iPad or my 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 reading for school. Can you help me find it? So I was like, sure, I'll help you find it. I think it's in Asgard, so why don't you go over to Asgard and look around? And and Thor's like, cool. And since I'm living in Asgard, I won't turn back into Don Blake. I'll just be Thor without my hammer. It'd be super cool. So he starts looking around at Asgard, and um, the gods are too busy to help him. So... He goes through this forest. The forest attacks him. So he knocks down a tree and turns into a hammer and uses that hammer to knock out the rest of the forest. And then, um, like, these dragons attack him and he's near a mountain. So he, like, uses his fingernail to etch a hammer out of the mountain and uses that hammer to beat up the dragons. But then it turns out that hammer is also made of Uru. So he uses his fingernail to carve an Uru hammer out of the Uru mountain. Because he doesn't have his regular Uru hammer. And you know what happens? The freaking Uru hammer he just made also flies away because of magnetism to the pile of chains and other hammer. So the hammer is attracted to the hammer. And yeah, so many hammers. Um, so Thor's like, hey, that hammer's flying away. I'll go find it and see where it goes. And oh, look, my other hammer's there. And oh, look, it's Loki. And... And everyone else is like, hey, Loki, what are you doing free? Yeah, we're going to have to go tie you up again. And Thor flies home. Yep. (laughs) So this is one of those issues where, you know, if I didn't have a podcast, I'd just read it and be like, well, that was silly. And throw it away, you know, or put it on a different pile or something. But Mm -hmm. as I have a podcast and I'm reading it, I actually kind of get angry because it's like, God, I have to talk about this. I have to say something. And all I'm going to say is negative things. And I don't like when people are just like negative all the time on podcasts I listen to. So, you know, then you sit there struggling to try and find something maybe good to say. But there's not a lot. This yeah. Is, this is a stinker. It's a bit. Um, I like seeing Heimdall at the beginning and people just like going past. And yeah. That's cool his, for five his cool Speedo. Yeah. I don't. He's got like, the Viking he, helmet and the sash and the sword and He-Man pants. He looks different than he did last time we saw him. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he's going to look different than this someday because this is kind of a weird look for him. But, um, and you know, Joe Sinnott's art isn't horrible. I think I like Kirby better on Thor. 
little more dynamic. Like mm-hmm. jo- Joe Sinat kind of draws a more Superman-y, I guess, like handsome and. Yeah, he does faces really well. That's what yeah. I, I was thinking about when I was going through this, is that Loki looked sinister the whole time, um, and his faces work really well. Um, we do get this girl at the beginning is a handmaiden to Fricka, uh-huh. Queen of Asgard. So that's so, our first mention uh-huh. in the comics of Fricka, also known as Frigga, also known as Freya, and that's where we get our name Friday from. <laughs> This is a much to do about nothing, though, because I feel like this could be a one panel discussion of, you know, Loki just telling us that he's been chained because he's a, up to no good all the time. You know, it's this big, long thing. And then we never see this girl again or Hemdall again. No. And Although then, Hemdall does mention Loki turning into a snake in that other issue. So uh, you get a little con- continuity nod. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that was issue 88. But then we get into some really mustache twirling dialogue and and all this stuff with the doctor and the you know fixing the bullet holes and him throwing the gurney across the city and stuff like none of that pays off in any way like none of that's relevant to anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's weird. And, and we get and, the whole like he turns into Thor right in front of them, but it's right behind their backs, so uh-huh. and it's just stupid. And so is his hammer able to not just get hurled at full speed? Does it actually? like slow down and change direction and stuff because he attaches his hammer to this gurney that he's tied these guys up on and he throws it to the hospital and they don't die. Right. <laughs> like they should die. They should just crash right into the wall and, you know, be dead. But instead they had this nice smooth landing and then it comes back. So I don't know. I don't know what their intention was with that panel, but um, I liked the film guys. I thought they, they had some funny dialogue through the course of the filming. Yeah, but then again, that doesn't ever pay off either. This no, whole, it's just a thing that happens. This, mean, this, this is whole literally book a book is full like, of things that just happen. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, a very Superman thing, too. Like, hey, Superman, help us with this awesome movie shoot. Sure. Like, how mm-hmm. do they even get a hold of Thor to ask him to help? And he's all Actually, about contributions and stuff to charity and everything. There was a period of time where a lot of Superman stories were just a way to showcase three super feats. Mm-hmm. And that would be your eight-page story. Your eight-page story would be some framing structure around three super feats. Mm-hmm. And so here we have the doctor's office, and then we have the movie studio, and then we have trying mm. to find a timer. Okay, yeah. Well, that's what they did. Um, the director's name was BJ, and I don't know if that just wasn't, as, wasn't a thing in the 60s compared to now, because that's a name. Well... Yeah, I would like to say that I've heard somebody been named BJ before, so I guess I guess it wasn't associated with anything else back then. Um, so Loki essentially could have won, except he was stupid. <laughs> How so? Well, well, maybe it wasn't him that was... Oh, yes, he planted the idea to have Thor ask Daddy to take him to Asgard. It's like, why do that? Why not just let him sit there going, where'd my hammer go, and then turn into Donald Blake and lose? You know? Interesting, yeah. It's like, no, no, come to Asgard where you're Thor 100% of the time and super awesome and kick butt, and I'll definitely not win. So I've triumphed, and Thor's hammer lies here. He's almost powerless without his hammer. I use my black arts. Thor has only defeated me on Earth, which Thor knows better than I, but in Asgard, I'm on home ground. I have a better chance to vanquish him here. You just said in the previous panel, he is almost powerless without his hammer. Right? But he thinks that... It's true. I guess he, when I read that initially, I thought he meant because he turns to Donald Blake and he is powerless, but he thinks that his brother is powerless without his hammer. I guess he's forgotten. He's the one who wrote the stupid thing at the beginning of the story, the little blurb, how Thor loses all of his powers without his hammer. 
if he's in Asgard, he doesn't lose his power. He's still super strong. And what I was going to, I kind of disagree with you that the blurb is wrong for this story because the mm-hmm. entire story is about Thor replacing his hammer so that he can stay being Thor. Oh, uh, yeah. How he has to, he feels like if he doesn't have a hammer, he has to make other hammers. Like, why doesn't he just, is it easier to just punch the trees with your awesome godlike strength or you have to make a, uh, a tree hammer to hit the trees with? You know, I guess. Like, why wouldn't that just explode? I don't know. I did have a couple of points of, of I guess, m- building the mythology mm-hmm. on here. Um, first minor point that on page eight at the bottom, whenever he says, my powers of sorcery have worked, I've caused the Uru metal of my chains to attract the Uru metal of the hammer with irresistible magnetism. Mm-hmm. Really, this is Loki overcoming Odin's enchantment on the hammer. Yeah, Odin's enchantment on the hammer is that it always goes back to Thor after it's been thrown. And here, Loki has found a way to overcome that, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But more, I think, important is that on the next page, he says, what a stroke of fortune. When Odin appears on Earth, time stands still. Mm. So I shall not turn back to Dr. Blake, even though my hammer has now been gone for 60 seconds. And then once in Asgard, I can remain Thor indefinitely. Now, Thor here learns that if he's not on Earth, if he's in Asgard, he's not going to change back to Don Blake. Mm -hmm. We can interpret this two different ways, or maybe other ways, but at least different ways. The 1963 reading up to this point perspective is that Don Blake gets to stay Thor when he's in Thor's home, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't hold the hammer, which is pretty cool for Don Blake. He goes to Thor's house and, hey, I get to stay Thor forever now until I go home again. Then I got to have a hammer. But then, of course, we have the other way of interpreting it, which is that Thor is the default state and his enchantment to turn mortal is only in effect when he's on Earth. Yeah. And if you go with the first way, you again wonder how does Don Blake know that Odin makes things time stand still and that he, when he's in Asgard, he doesn't turn back. Mm-hmm. So it pretty much has to be the other way, especially since we know it ultimately will be retconned to be the other way. Right. Um, we could, if we wanted to, we could say that like he's sitting there being held in his daddy's giant hand, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not very manly, but go ahead. He realizes that more than 60 seconds have passed. Uh Uh-huh. So he's like pulling an explanation out of his ass. That could be. And Odin's here, so time must be stopped. And he did go to Asgard in a different issue. We just never saw what they did there. Mm -hmm. He kind of landed the last panel. He was there, and they're all just like, hey, son, how's it going? And he probably stayed for a day or two, maybe. Who knows? So maybe at that point he figured out that he could just stay Thor all the time. Right. And you know... He actually might have precedent for this. Remember when he was talking to Jane and right in the middle of his conversation, Odin started talking to him Mm -hmm. because he was going to tell Jane that he's Thor and Odin shows up in his brain and says, you can't do that. Yeah. So maybe he does realize Odin's present time stands still. So he might have a little bit of basis for that. I'm sure Stan thought about all this. I'm sure. Just like we are. (laughs) He didn't even write this one. He just came up with a plot idea. Okay, okay, okay. So Jack, he loses his hammer, right? But then he gets all these other hammers. And Jack's like, <laughs> okay. lots of hammers. Okay. Not Jack. Oh, yeah. Um, so Uru. This is Joe said it, yeah. Uru can smash Uru. That's like adamantium smashing adamantium. Sometimes that stuff bothers me. I can't decide if that would work or not work. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like how come a bullet can pierce adamantium if it's made of adamantium? Like they're just both unbreakable, aren't they? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it can. I don't know. I would I think two things of equal hardness would repel each other. You would think. But then it's like, but the bullet is tiny and sharp. And so maybe, and it has force. So does that factor in it all? Or, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't take physics and we never shot anything, even if I did. So, and then I also feel like Loki would have just died right there because he's chained by this unbreakable chain and he just had a hammer fly across the universe that's also unbreakable to break that unbreakable chain and like he's fine he should just be smashed to death but hey it's 1963 whatever um but the other thing that bothers me is that then thor like you said carves a hammer out of that same unbreakable material right so it's like jesus how powerful is thor or how weak is uru metal right and I get the impression later that Uru is actually a bit precious and a bit rare. So the fact that there's like this like boulder just like <laughs> sitting there made of Uru that he's able to like pull out. Maybe that was weird. Maybe Walter Simonson comes back to this and says it's like unpure Uru or something like that. It's not yeah, the it could same. be like it could have a nugget of Uru in it. Un- unrefined Uru boulder. So um, Loki is finally captured by the gods. Odin, Heimdall, Fricka. Yes, you villain. Thor has summoned us. You used your black arts to attract Thor's hammer to Asgard in order to smash your unshatterable chains. Then you influenced Thor's mind to lure him to Asgard and our minds to keep him here so you could destroy him. And Thor flies by in the background. Yeah, Odin. But luckily I made all these other kinds of hammers to fight the menaces he sent. And then... Return again to Earth, my son, and fear not. We shall find a better way to impersonate the sinister Loki. I hope so, Dad, but if Loki ever really breaks free, we, we, we might not have enough hammers to stop him. And it's just like, oh my God, shut up, shut, shut up about the hammers. Shut up about the hammers, and also it feels like, oh crap, we ran out of room. Let's just really wrap this up. Because like, these gods just know everything about what happened in one panel. And, and then he does... Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't cut you off. Go ahead. I was going to say, and then he does like the little knee jerk reaction thing with a little rubber hammer. And it's just like, oh my God. Da, 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 da. Hammer time. Dr. Blake is very experienced with using a mallet. Jane, honey, you don't know the half of it. Yeah. Fun. So yeah, I hated this one. Whatever. <laughs> Actually, I haven't. Man, I kind of think I've liked Thor for a while now, it feels like. I was, I was really into it when he first came around and, you know, Jack Kirby was drawing him, looking at him, making him all cool and stuff. But then, yeah, I don't think – I think since he's left, I haven't really enjoyed it. And, and my impression is it's going to pick up again going forth from 97. Okay. So we've got we've got a few, a few more months of Thor to kind of just kind of get through. Now, we do have a recurring character coming in next issue because we have the radioactive man. So that'll be kind of cool. Okay. I didn't realize that was a Thor bad guy for some reason. And then he joins the Masters of Evil because uh, Masters of Evil is made up of one character from one villain from each character's rogues gallery. Ah, uh, sure. So but after that, I think he's just kind of more loosely an Avengers bad guy. Well, we've hit our over the hour mark, but I kind of feel like I want to do one more book because if we don't, then we're going to have problems next episode because we're kind of we're kind of at this pattern now where we have one full size book and two mini books, and then a full size book and two mini books, and we talked a lot about sergeant fury and we probably won't do that next time so do you want well, to just nothing saying we, we 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 have to stop now we could no, go forward i just don't want people to suffer and groan but i think they're gonna be fine with it so okay so listeners you know if if, if you're done with us for now just push the pause button yeah that's, we'll an idea too. that's true yeah we'll yep. be here tomorrow come back and listen more tomorrow we're gonna keep on going because we are excited to get to a very wonderful issue tales to astonish number 44 
Yay. Which now stars Ant-Man and... Go ahead. The Wonderful Wasp. The Wonderful Wasp. Um, And I get to summarize this. And cover date is the same, or not the same. It's June 1963. The on-sale date is also March, though, March 5th, 1963. So we're still the first week of March. And let me give you some credits, because I can't remember. Oh, Lee and Kirby again. We're back on the Lee and Kirby track with this book, which makes me sad. But we can talk about that in a second. Um, (laughs) So this one's called The Creature from Cosmos. And it starts with our hero... Hank Pym kind of staring off into space and he's thinking about something. And you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the same thing that has been bugging all of us, our listeners and you and me. Why? Why did he create the ant formula? You know, we know he did it, but what was the reason? His motivation has really, you know, been a mystery and we've cared a lot about it. We've talked about it a lot. No, 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 we haven't. But we're going <laughs> to talk about like, it now, people. There is a motivation. Even the Science Council doesn't want me to do this, I'm going <laughs> to pursue my own creative designs. Right. But that's still even not a motivation because he had already started it at that point. So how did he start it? This is how he started it for anybody who's been interested. Apparently, he flashes back. And apparently, at one point, Hank Pym was married. He was married to a girl named Maria. Maria. I just met a girl. Um, And... He married her, and she was from this country. Oh, crud. A bad country. A not a U.S. country. like Hungary. Uh, Hungary. I was going to say Hungary or Transylvania or something like that. Yeah, Hungary. <laughs> Transylvania. And, wow. Um, you know, because of Dracula. Um, she, now all these Transylvanians are going to stop listening. But she and her father escaped as refugees. Her father's like a scientist. I think that's why. I don't really remember. But they escaped and found asylum in the United States. Then she married Hank Pym. So now she is Maria Pym. And she decides, let's go back to Hungary, you and me, on our honeymoon. And he's like, but uh, didn't you and your dad almost die here? She's like, yes, but I have a different last name now, and I look like an American woman now. They're not going to find me, right? So they go to Hungary, and there's a bunch of, like, fun, uh, you know, like, lovey-dovey conversation and i'm gonna botch this but it's kind of important so at some point he says something like i want to stop being a scientist so that i could just be your husband full time and be around all the time to kiss on you and stuff and she goes oh so you're gonna be a lazy man huh well my dad always said look to the ants yada yada something something which is like a quote from the bible that teaches people to work really hard or something like that anyway so remember that look to the ants or whatever that's That'll come back later, obviously. Um, but anyway, just as they're they're coming up with that quote, this van pulls up, grabs his wife, and some dude knocks Hank Pym out over the head with a frying pan. And when he comes to, they're all gone. So he goes to the embassy. He's like, my wife, my wife, you must find my wife. And they do find her. Unfortunately, they find her dead with a note that says something like, that's what you get for trying to escape. And then he also finds out that his father-in-law's science lab exploded so they probably got the whereabouts of father-in-law from the kidnapped wife ouch maybe tortured her i don't know anyway he's very distraught he's got bandages on his head from the frying pan he decides to go out and get vengeance it doesn't really show how he does this but what happens is that he accomplishes nothing and he ends up in hungarian jail so They feel sorry for him. They let him go. He goes back to the States, and he's kind of just sitting there wallowing in self-pity, having no idea what to do. And then he remembers that quote. 
look to the ants or whatever. But he, instead of taking it as get back to work, he takes it very literally and decides, yes, I'm going to learn how to communicate with ants and shrink down to ant size and fight war on crime as Ant-Man. So now we know why all that happened, where that all started. Um, you can all breathe easier. Now we get on to the real story, though. Uh, we're back to him thinking about all that when he decides, you know, it's been a long time. Uh, being Ant-Man's really hard. It'd be great if I had a partner, especially if I died or something, they could take over. So he starts inventing another suit for somebody, you know, just in case. And he comes up with these cool ideas where if, like, they shrink, he could put little circuitry in them so that when they shrink, they could grow wings and antenna and stuff like that. Um, and just as he's working on all this, there's a knock at his door, and it's Dr. Van Dyne and his daughter, Janet. And right away, Hank Pym notices that Janet looks a lot like Maria, except she's very young. She's just a child, almost a child, practically a child. And also right away, Janet thinks that Hank Pym is really good looking, except he's a scientist, so he's probably boring and she's not all that interested. Anyway, Dr. Van Dyne is there to ask for help with his awesome gamma beam, which is going to be shot into space so he can look for aliens because he's never read Hulk or Fantastic Four or Tales of Suspense or any of that stuff, Tales to Astonish. So he's still looking for aliens, unlike everybody else. And Hank Pym, we know the truth. Hank Pym's like, you know, you know, I actually am a scientist who only deals with molecular biology and talking to animals and inventing robots. So that's really not my area. And Dr. Van Dyne goes away. But later that night, he figures it out all by himself, and he shoots a beam into the air, and it does find an alien. Unfortunately, it's a bad alien. It's like an alien that kind of looks like a – it looks like Lockjaw's face to me from uh, the uh, Inhumans. You know, kind okay, of like a big, yeah. big bulldoggy face with no eyes, kind of. But then he has like a really like a green ghosty body, wafy or a, I don't know, gaseous body. Anyway, it shows up. It takes it travels across the beam and ends up in his house, which is not great. And he says, I'm going to take over the world. And he pretty much kills Dr. Van Dyne, leaves him for dead in his office and takes off. So Janet comes home, finds her dad dead. This does not make her happy. She's distraught. She doesn't know what to do. Who should she call? She calls. Hank Pym. And Hank Pym tells her, no, you're a stupid child. That doesn't make any sense. You're lying. But then his aunts whisper in his ear and go, no, no, seriously, he's dead. And he decides to believe his aunts over her. And he goes hold over. Hold on, hold on. I, I, I just want to make sure we, we, we understand this. Okay. Her father is dead. Yeah. She's calling for help. Uh-huh. And his response is, why are you being such a silly girl? Yes. Your father hasn't been killed. Yes. Why would you make up that story? Yes. Stop calling me. Right. And then... To add insult to injury, the ants tell him the same thing, and he believes them. He so. believes the ants. <laughs> so he goes over as Ant-Man, and he finds out she's right, and he's like, oh, something crazy must have happened here. His machinery is all wrecked and stuff. Only an alien or monster or something could do that. So something's going on. So he tells her, call this FBI guy, and then come over to Dr. Pym's house He'll explain everything. Trust me. So she does it because Ant-Man is like the hero of the city and everybody loves Ant-Man, including Janet Van Dyne. So she goes over there and he's like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to risk everything. I just have a feeling I could tell you want vengeance for your father's death. And I've been looking for a partner. So I can't hear that one nearly as well, but I'll still take it out. So what I'll do is open this awesome uh, science lab coat I have and reveal to you that I am Ant-Man. And she's like, wow, that's awesome. 
And he's like, do you want to be my partner? And she's like, heck, yes, I do. And so he like puts those circuitry things inside her or whatever he calls them, microchips or something. She's fine with that. And he also has a suit all ready to go for her. And now she's the wasp. And as the wasp, she can shrink like he can. But when she shrinks, she grows. He says an antenna, but I don't know if that's really an antenna or just her hat is pointy. And then also wings. So she can fly and stuff. So it's way cooler. Um, and they go to they go to work. So um, the alien from Cosmos or yeah, the alien from Cosmos has been attacking the city. It's now like in the water attacking a bridge. And so they show up there to try and beat it. Um, as they're going there, Jan's like, you know, Mr. Ant-Man, Hank Pym, I thought you were kind of a square. But now that I know you're Ant-Man, I'm pretty much going to be falling in love with you. And he's like, listen, lady, I'm not into that. OK, you're just a child. And I've already been married and don't want nothing to do with that. And she's like, okay, well, I'll show him I'm just a child. And she goes to attack the creature all on her own. And some weird, ambiguous art happens. I'm not exactly sure what happens, but somehow, like, the thing tries to suck her in. And he has to, like, grab her and pull her back. I don't know. Nothing really happens. But they realize they can't beat this guy with fisticuffs. And they also find out at some point that the ants won't be helping because they're scared to death of this thing. Because it, like exudes the same acid or something that ants have so it kind of reads to the ants like it's an ant but it's also not an ant so they're too scared to help so that gives hank pym an idea and they go back to the lab and they get a regular old shotgun and they open the bullets and he fills it with some sort of ant anti-ant acid <laughs> anti-ant an antacid yeah and puts it in the bullet <laughs> and they go back to the pier or the bridge and ant-man takes a shot and it kills the alien or makes it disappear or whatever. And that's it. So that was easy. And Wasp goes to hug him and he pushes her off and says, what did I say? I'm not interested in a relationship. You're just a child. I've been married. She died. That's it. And Wasp sort of chuckles and goes like, well, until he figures out that he's totally into me, I'll just be happy being the Wasp. The end. I think. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's basically it. I there's a lot of buildup for very little reward in terms of the alien, I thought. But this story is there to introduce the wasp, and mm-hmm. then you have the creature from Cosmos as like uh, a incidental almost mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah, it takes like a page to beat him. Right. Um, okay. A very common source of humor around Henry Pym is that he, you know, gets involved with a child, and that's you know, of course, highly inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you were planning on making a lot of those kinds of cracks or not. I just, I remember coming across an issue of the Avengers where it actually states her age. Uh-huh. And even though sure there is an age gap and sure the sixties juvenilized, you know, women to a higher age than we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, when it says child, we're eventually talking about late teens, even possibly at po- after 20, but definitely not a minor. No, she's got the body of a, you know, legal person, I think. I never took it to mean like she was 10 or 14. I think some people like to joke that he, she's like 16. And, you know, so he's getting involved with a 16-year-old because eventually her 
persistent advances do tend to wear down his resistance, which, by the way, it's worth pointing out that in this story, regardless of some small attraction he may feel for her, he is completely above board in his behavior towards a younger woman, um, regardless of her age. Yeah. Yeah, um, but eventually, eventually he, do, you know, he does tend to come around, and she does. T- uh, they do start to form a romantic inv- involvement, um, while she is, you know, evidently only slightly older than she is here. But like I said, later on, she will get um, established as an age. Um, at that time, I believe it's twenty three. And if you count backwards back to this issue, even if you go by calendar time that has passed which is the most amount of time that could have passed. Um, it's only like four years. So um, she's like 19 here. But yeah. So then how old is Hank Pym supposed to be? 30s? I don't know. 35, 40. He's... So we always talk about how Hank Pym doesn't have a personality, but he sure developed one in this issue. He's very morose. Well, he's, not, he's not just thing. morose, but he's just not having anything to do with a youthful girl who's interested in him. <laughs> yeah, he's asexual. Not asexual in the modern sense, but asexual in like the narrative sense. Yes. Yeah, so I And this whole Maria thing just comes out of nowhere and I think it pretty much goes back there. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. We might get a, a mention or two of them in the immediate future whenever kind of you know helps establish what's going on in this story now. And but I feel like Maria Pym is just not really a point of history. Well that you- gets mentioned. We talk about how Thor is Superman, and I've joked that Ant-Man is kind of Batman of the 60s. Batman, you know, where he's happy all the time. Right. Where Batman's happy all the time, I mean. Like, he does. He has the animal motif. He's got the feelers out there for his city. He runs his city. Everybody loves him. He's got gadgets. Um, So maybe they decided we need to give him something to be uh, motivated about. And so instead of killing his parents, they kill his wife. It is a really sad story. Yeah. Yeah. It is very sad. And they actually name Hungary instead of keeping a generic Iron Curtain country mm-hmm. like they usually do. Um, and just to clarify, she pulls out the saying as kind of a tease. Like, he's talking about how in love with yes. her she, he is. Right, right. They're on their honeymoon. And, and he could just, like, be with her forever. And it's it's romantic. He's not really getting lazy, but she teases him with, like, you know, go to the ants, thou sluggard. Um but of course so, he's going to take that to her right. later. Yeah, and I'd never heard of that quote before, so of course I had to look it up. And yeah, it's a Bible thing, and I didn't get too far into it. But it really has nothing to do with literally – it did, actually. I guess you were literally supposed to look at ants and come away with their – how hardworking they are or organized or something. But Yeah. But that didn't mean like learn how to talk with them and become one of them. It is the weirdest connection. Very, very crazy connection. (laughs) (laughs) It is so far removed from I shall become a bat. Right. I mean. Yes. This is. And I shall become an ant. An ant. Because my wife teased me that one time about feeling happy. And she used a Bible quote. About when I threatened to stop working. She's like, no, no, keep working. As my wife's last words to me were talking about ants. She said, ants. I must learn about ants. Yeah. So within a sad story is a really stupid motivation for sure. Yeah. Sadly. Sadly. Yes. Um, um, but okay. So Jan, we kind of talked about her age, but she is living with her dad, but she does look like a, you know, a woman who's got past puberty and stuff at least. So I never thought that she was like an actual child. I thought 
Pym was just kind of being a jerk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of why he's being a jerk is purposely overly being a jerk is just so he makes sure that he isn't attracted to this woman that he probably is attracted to. Uh, because he doesn't want to be hurt, have, right? Yeah. But he moans about his wife, mm-hmm. and then to be immediately attracted to the next one that comes along in the same story would be a little bit strange. Yeah, but she does look exactly like Maria, which is just like Alicia Masters looking like Invisible Woman. I guess there's only like two kinds of women in the Marvel Universe or something. Right, and Jack uh, Kirby's <laughs> That reminds me, yeah, so sad. I wish this was Don Heck still. Does he come back, or is this just like a one-off? Yeah, yeah, yeah Jack Kirby. I imagine I don't have anything to base this on except my own supposition, but like Jack Kirby came on to this issue because it was going to be a bigger issue and it was going to be more pages and he'd get a higher page count. Bah. I was like, oh, Wasp next issue. Don Heck, this is going to be great. And then it was Jack Kirby who, you know, I love Jack, but I don't think he fits Ant-Man as well. And the creature from Cosmos is, is really is lame. a booger monster. Yeah. It's, he's a slimy green booger monster. Booger monster. Yep. Um, it's not great. And then... All the stuff with the ants. Yeah, Don Heck is, ne- is back next issue. Okay. Um, all the stuff with the ants in this issue is all superfluous. Mm-hmm. Do you realize they got ants to carry and load and fire a shotgun? Mm-hmm. Like, they're using ants to fire a shotgun. Well, they could just <laughs> use a person? Yeah. Yeah, they could just say, okay, so Janet, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fire this shotgun. Why are we? Why are we uh, dressed like Ant Man of the Wasp? You know, it's just a thing we do. <laughs> why are we shrunk? Um, we don't really need to do the whole shrinking thing right now because we're just going to fire a shotgun. It would be a lot of work for the ants to like rig a pulley and everything to fire. So we're just going to do it ourselves. And by the way, I know this is your first issue, Wasp, but you're not going to do anything. <laughs> anything. She really doesn't. She, she really, does like, nothing. When she tries to, it gets messed up. And I don't even understand that part exactly. Like, um, he has just teased her about being a child, and so she's like, "Gotta go out there and prove herself." No, I got that part, but then what happens? I don't um, get it. Alien miasmic tentacles lick out at the tiny flying figure, reaching formless fog fingers like trickles of doom. But still, she flies closer, closer, until he seems to draw her to him. And desperately, Ant-Man climbs atop the steel girders, hurls himself into space, and seizes the wasp's hand, his weight carrying her down away from the creature from Cos. Yeah. What? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like it turned into a light, and she was just like going towards it, and he stopped her. Right. I don't know. It was weird. They didn't really establish what Cosmos is or what he does. He's just like this weird floating um, Slimer thing, I guess. I don't know. The craziest part is he comes back. Oh, God. (laughs) Only once, but he actually gets a name. He is Palai, and he's a creature from space that somebody else fights at some point. Um, I wanted to correct one thing on your synopsis. Uh Her wings... Hank actually embeds some tissue, okay, some organic tissue. tissue I couldn't like, remember what it was. Actually, gives her new body parts. Okay, under her shoulder skin. So, so that whenever she shrinks down, they sprout wings. In Ultimate, she's a mutant. In Ultimate, she has this exact same ability because of her own mutant developments, not because of implantation. And then the argument, and then they decide that that's how why Hank even went into that field because he analyzed her blood and came up with a synthetic version, kind of, of right, like, right. recreating her powers. So here he is creating the Wasp, and I've always wondered like why he didn't just do that for himself too. That seems awfully handy. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's worth pointing out at this point that by now. Um, 
the Ant-Man and Wasp movie has come out, and mm. we've talked about it, and it's been out there. As we're recording this, that movie is still in the future. Uh-huh. But in the trailers, um, you know, there's a bit where she has wings, and he's, like, jealous. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, don't I get wings? And like, No, you don't get wings. Right. Although I think hers are synthetic also, but I don't know. Because they have armor in that movie. I think, mm-hmm. or something like that. But yeah, like, suits. like, they suits like they have how here. come he doesn't hook himself up? That's crazy. He just goes, f- finds flying ants instead, I guess. But, mm-hmm. but cool. She does have antenna. Um, I was totally wrong. She has antenna in addition to a pointy cone head. I forgot about that. Yeah, the pointy cone head comes and goes. Her wa- her costume is in such fluctuation. <gasps> it is almost never the same for more than like two or three issues in a row. Okay, so we slammed. I don't know if we slammed on Hank Pym, but he is overly kind of like cold to her but i actually think that fits the story so and you know eventually they do hook up but what do you think of wasp because i feel like she's always been one of my favorite marvel characters Mm -hmm. um not to be all sexist but female quote-unquote characters you know like um but i also know because i've read some early avengers and stuff i know that she's about shopping and cute boys and stuff like that. But in the future, when she's written better by less misogynist men, possibly, mm-hmm. she's still into shopping and cute boys and being rich and stuff. But she owns that in addition to being like an awesome Avengers leader and a kick-ass right. person and a strong person. So there's nothing wrong with being a person who likes shopping and cute boys and being rich. So when I read this, even though, yeah, there's a lot of that in there, I actually really enjoyed that, even though I think Stan's writing her that way because that's just how he understands women. But uh, I like that well, she thought he was a dork and then later was, uh, was like really in love with him because he's a superhero and it's action and it's fun. And then I also like that she thinks it's funny that he pushes off her hug, you know? Right. And then he's blushing and that she's like going to be flirty with him. You know, she's like a cool character already compared to the other women we've had and that we've read about. She has more personality than any other woman we've read about. Yeah. Like we were talking earlier about the most feminist character in comics so far was the the leader of that, uh, you know, French resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, this character is written very much like Stanley writing a female character, but she has more personality and she will go on to lead the Avengers and she will go on to be a very powerful character um, in standing in the superhero community. Um and I think until the mid 2000s, when an efforts for diversity in Marvel Comics like really started to thrive, she was one of the few women who had led the Avengers team. Yeah, I don't know how many women there were who had led Avengers before, say, 2008. Um, well, who did after? I can't even think of anybody. Well, since then, there have been a lot more Avengers teams and even Avengers teams that are completely women and stuff. So it's it's just um, Captain Marvel, Miss Marvel. Captain Marvel comes to mind. Um, See, not many, though. Yeah, but, but yeah, I guess the fact that it's struggling means that not many. Wow, uh, which is very different to the X Men, where female characters mm. have very equal standing to men throughout the eighties. The Aven- anyways, Avengers are very sexist. We're finding <laughs> hmm. maybe, maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, I like her. I like her a lot. And a lot of the stuff you were mentioning about shopping and everything is is very much influenced by her personality from early on when she gets inheritance. She uses it to find to found a fashion design company. Mm-hmm. She leads her own fashion line and then starts wearing the stuff that she's selling. And so her clothes are always going to be um, unusual, and she's always going to have a standout look. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she changes her that, costume a lot. 
Yeah, and that sticks with her personality. Right. She's very into the visuals and into presentation, and um, she loves being a woman. Yeah, and so even things like you know, like I said, where they were doing their first fly to the bad guy scene, and she's like, "I want you to know, in case this creature kills us, as it did my father, I'm falling in love with you." By page thirteen, you know, mm-hmm. and she barely knows him. And nowadays, you might roll your eyes and be like, "Gosh, you know." keep it in your pants lady but like she also is young we know she's young mm-hmm. we don't know how young 16 17 18 19 20 and she's flying for the first time with a superhero so her adrenaline's crazy this is very mm-hmm. exciting she already thought he was cute now he's not just cute but not a dork anymore he's a superhero right like none of that bothered me that she was like already kind of into him and is going to be flirting with him hardcore probably every issue from here on out but yeah, the actual creature from Cosmos don't have a lot to say. No. It's just kind of there. Eh. Um, and, yeah. The, the the one thing about the whole creature from Cosmos is the formic acid aspect of it. <sighs> yeah. But they, they actually they actually pulled out some actual kind of sort of science. They did, and I botched yeah. it because I couldn't remember what it was. But they did go really deep into that. So the, the creature is made of formic acid, or at least one of its primary components of its physiology is formic acid. Mm-hmm. And so... Ant-Man goes home and makes a solution that will counteract that acid. He makes the base that will counteract that acid. And, you know, Huntley doesn't describe the chemistry in too much detail, but just the basics of the idea is actual believable chemistry. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, they say formic acid and oxalic base and all kinds of big words. So it sounds legit. <laughs> and then they, shoot it, then they shoot it at him with a shotgun. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> yeah. The ants shoot him with a shotgun because that's what ants should do. No, he does because he makes this big deal about telling her how strong he is because she's like, how are you going to pull that trigger, big man? And he's like, oh, "Oh, well, I have the same strength I do as a full-size man. Well, the ants carry the shotgun shells. They do. Oh, they carry it over there. Yeah. And then he just gets to do the fun part. Okay. He pulls the trigger. The the trigger that's his size. So it's kind of a weird look. Anything else on this comic? No, just happy she's here. I'm looking forward to like their interactions and stuff. Something different. Yeah, and since this is monthly, we have a lot more of her than we will of like you know Spider Man for a while. So, mm-hmm. um, next episode we're going to go into the second half of March 1963. Uh, we have still the the rest of this month of Iron Man and Fantastic Four and Strange Tales. So we'll start going through those. Um, a few people who have followed us on Facebook since last we spoke. I can't remember if I've mentioned this guy, so I want to give thanks to Gene Hendricks. Gene Hendricks, <laughs> Gene Hendricks is a podcasting machine. He has his own theme song, da 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 da. Gene, and um, he's he's pretty great. I got to meet him in Orlando once, and so Gene, thank you very much for all the support you given for the show. Also, Jeremy Grunberg, Ben Brainerd. And my good friend and fellow podcaster, Jason Venable, of the podcast that goes Snicked, which I occasionally guest on, is uh, also a recent follower on Facebook. Over at the Twitter land, we have some uh, recent followers on Twitter. Brian, who uh, does baseball and hockey and all this sports stuff, but he also likes comics. That's weird. It happens. It happens. Uh, This is one guy named Kaiser I know. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Sometimes. Marvel Mishaps, which is the official Twitter account of MarvelMishaps.com, a site created to lovingly mock Marvel Comics starting in the Silver Age. They're following us. Uh, and SuperheroReviews.com, 
their Twitter account is following us. So thank you all. Um, continue to show your support of the show by sharing our Facebook posts and retweeting our tweets uh, with episode links, because that is a great way to get other people to see that, hey, we're a podcast. You should listen. Okay, so I'm sorry to be quiet there for a second, but a news thing came on as you were talking about all that, that two guys went to Stanley's house and started screaming at him for money and they had guns and stuff. Oh my gosh, why can't Stanley just have a peaceful, happy last (laughs) years of life? And then the cops showed up and arrested them. So that's craziness. Anyway. (sighs) um, Yeah, so... So where can they find us? <laughs> Segway. How can they contact us to tell us about how they did not go to Stanley's house right? of guns? What if those guys were listening to our podcast while that was happening? Crazy. Anyway, makeoursmarvel.com is where you can find all our stuff, our Google, our Facebook, our Twitter, our what else? Our YouTube. And you can write us at podcast at makeoursmarvel.com or you can use the form. The website also has a post for each episode where I include images of what we talk about and you can play the episode right there or you can subscribe to the various feeds that we also link there. All right. Well, we will be back next time and until then, or until BJ, the film director, makes a movie starring Spider-Man, make ours Marvel. Coming September 1st. Image Comics formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers, creator-owned mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right.